This is the Boxing Betting Show with Tom Craze. Welcome to episode five of the Boxing Betting Show. My name is Tom Craze and I'm your host twice a month. To kick things off, I had the pleasure recently of catching up with former oddsmaker and former ESPN boxing insider Johnny Wilds. We covered a fair bit of ground in this chat, but you'll hear more about Johnny's history in the betting industry, his thoughts on the weekend action ahead, and all about his new YouTube show, launched in tandem with none other than Lou DiBella. Johnny Wilds, thanks for coming on the show. How are things? Oh, doing well. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. It's a pleasure to finally get to speak with you. Absolutely. And uh, and likewise, as I was saying just before we came on the air, you were one of the kind of names fairly high up on the wish list when I was compiling a, a list of guests to get on. For those who don't know, and, and I guess for those who do, Johnny is probably a fairly familiar name to, to many in the industry, I, I guess probably more on the on the West Coast of the of the States. Um, I guess for the, uh, the listeners, the the part that some don't know is um, I used to um, do odds in Las Vegas and how that came across was is I was doing my undergraduate degree at UNLV and I was on academic scholarship, but I was putting myself through school because it didn't cover all the tuition. So I went over to the financial aid office and asked them, you know, about jobs and they had something that come up called a ticket writer at the old Sands Hotel. Um, I didn't know what a ticket writer was. I fully knew what gambling was growing up in an Italian family. Um, I was around numbers my whole life. Um, so I went and interviewed and basically the job was is for when a customer comes up, they say they want to make a bet on whether it's football or boxing. You type in the number and you give them their ticket, you know, take the money. I think I was fast tracked because it was back to the Costa Zoo, Jake the Snake Rodriguez fight, I believe, at the MGM in around 95. And um, I didn't really know how the numbers worked per se, like the minuses and the pluses. Um, I knew about gambling. And so um, they had the the fight. They had Jake the Snake Rodriguez, I believe, as a favorite. And I looked at one of the uh, managers and I said, well, that's not right. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And, and I said, so you need to flip flop it. And he's like, no, no. And then a week later, the fight came to fruition and Costia, you know, did what he did. And mm-hmm. they basically took me from being a ticket writer and really taught me the business from the, from the ground floor up. So I did that and was recruited by Harris after about a year and a half. Um, they needed someone that could bring a little value to the um, the sports side of the business for them. Um, they had some some good people there, but they just weren't very sharp per se. So um, I was pretty young at the time um, and then they moved me up. And so that's kind of how I got my career on, on the gaming side of the business, if you will. Okay. And, and so with the boxing then, I presume you were a big fan before you moved into into that side of things? Yeah, I was um, fortunate enough that um, growing up, my father um, was a big boxing fan. Um, so he used to um, put on, you know, it was free at the time, whether it was ABC, World of Sports, there was no pay-per-views. Um, but I was watching boxing all the time. In fact, my parents, I think they were a little concerned about me. They used to catch me up as really young, like five years old, watching the boxing uh, telecasts on Telemundo in Spanish. And I didn't speak a word of Spanish at the time. And I uh, just had a, a fascination for it. And I, I thank my dad for that because he would tell me about boxers that were in the 50s and 60s. And he had a really loving and, and desire of, of the sport. And so I learned a lot from him. And so it wasn't just the um, the gambling side. I was a huge fan from, I guess, the time I can remember. Obviously, you mentioned you were, you were kind of doing the odds making. You, you've moved away from that, as I understand it. Yeah, um, I um, I had to move um, from Vegas um, to California 
um, in around 2001. Um, it was a hard move. I had to re-career. It was really hard because I couldn't do anything with the gaming side because of it was illegal only in, in Nevada. Um, but I kept my contacts there, and I still do consult with the Westgate. And uh, Jay Cornegay, who's, who's probably one of the best in the business, used to work next door at the Imperial Palace. And so Jay and I have stayed in contact through the years, and um, I still consult with them on their boxing line. So even though I was in California and wasn't in the middle of the action, I was still part of it, if that makes sense. What's your take then on the outlook for California, and, and how does that affect your your um, gambling and your, your betting at the moment? Are you kind of remote offshore? Do you, do you still make the trip into Vegas? Yeah, well, the, the first part about the, um, the repeal, um, I just got news from Dave Purdom um, that – Assemblyman Adam Gray, he's out here and he's trying to get it on the November 20 ballot. Um, California is a little bit of a, an odd state, if you will, um, but there's so much money they can make from this. And there's so many people out here and there's there's areas like the racetracks. There's a lot of lucrative and well-desired places that sports books could pop up. So um, hopefully it'll get on the November 20 ballot. What that being said is, um, you know, offshore has his exposure. So getting down on the fights is, is sometimes harder in the States than it is, say, overseas. Most of the time, I'm either in Vegas or through Twitter, have met people that I have intimate relationships with. I trust them. Um, they're allowed to stay in my home um, with my wife and crazy um, Sharpay and four cats. They're, they're good people. Um, but the ability to, to, let's say, like when you're in Vegas is, is mitigated when you live in a place like California because – you have the exposure of on, you know, the offshore, will they pay? It's just, it's it's a lot more difficult, let's say, being in a state that allowed it. I was actually reading a report earlier this week, and it was about, it's actually about something completely separate. The report was saying that actually, well, as, as an overview, I guess, for, for some of the, the guys listening, there are eight states live, I believe, at the moment in terms of legal single game sports betting. There are further six that are authorized, but not yet operational. And there are 16 states with active um, legislation kind of in, in progress or pending at the moment. It sounds like California will be one to add to that list. Now, the report was actually saying that, OK, obviously you have the, the kind of the early early adopters um, within two years. They reckon Colorado, Montana, Michigan, uh, Indiana, Ohio, a couple of others. And the report said within five years, it would be California, New York, Washington. That sounds like still a way off, but perhaps from what you just said, there, it could be accelerated a little bit further. That would be the hope. I mean, there, there's no reason that, that California couldn't benefit from those those tax dollars on the um, the gambling side of it. Um, you know, we're in a we're in a challenging time out here. I mean, things are very expensive in California. Um, we have a lot of inherent challenges um, with the economics of the state working. That's why so many people are leaving. Unfortunately, gambling as a whole has a has a taboo to it. Um, it's starting to be a little bit more open minded. Um, you're seeing the NFL partner. Um, with Vegas, um, you're seeing other sports like in hockey. So that whole, let's say, taboo is being more and more acceptable. Um, there's a lot worse things in the world than, than people gambling. And for, for reasons maybe justified, maybe not, um, gambling just has this negative taboo to it. But my hopes are that starts lessening um, and we, we see it become more accepted as a culture and I mean, honestly, Tom, I mean, you've been around this long enough. Everyone likes to have a little bit of action on something. And when you have that, you have more viewership. So there's more marketing dollars. There's no really exposure for, you know, things to get out of hand with fixing the fights. 
things like that or games. Um, Vegas is the watchdog for everything. And I have stories when I when I worked there with the whole Arizona State scandal. Um, they they have their their nose to the grindstone. They know when something's weird happening, like action comes in. So they're watching it. So if you have more legalized gambling, then you have more even control at a higher level than let's say your your Uncle Tony taking bets over the phone and he's got his hands in the pot and things like that, if that makes sense. Over here in, in the UK, we have the kind of the exact opposite of what you guys have over in the in the States as a whole. We have a very progressive, very sophisticated, very kind of mature gambling industry and kind of very deeply integrated with sports teams, with football clubs, with the Premier League, betting um, sponsor the actual leagues themselves, uh, you know, as, as a kind of flagship sponsor in a way. So it, it's so kind of in, entwined here. But on the on the flip side, what you have in, in California is obviously a legalized industry of marijuana. Now, over, over here in, in the UK, we have a a very kind of draconian in, in some ways uh, set of rules when it comes set of laws rather when it comes to drugs and and, and so on whether that's cannabis or you know whether it's heroin or whatever so the the same discussion is being had over here to say actually look if it's legalized then you you drive it out of the the underworld as it were you can regulate it you can make tax money from it and that's the correct way to do it but it seems like you know there's very few places probably that accept both and we have one polar opposite and you, you guys have the other at the moment. I'm sure you'll get there. Um, certainly have my fingers crossed for you. It's an interesting one, I think, that obviously is considered taboo in a way that certainly in the in, in the UK and, and mainland Europe, it's it's just not. It's um, Yeah, it's a bit of an eye opener sometimes. It is. I mean, you, you talk to people that I've met, like there's a buddy, Colin, I've met from from Scotland. And I think you see him on on Twitter. And, you know, we, we've had these discussions and he was a little bit sobered coming to the United States and hearing about some of the things that that we deal with, whether it be especially in, in, in California, property insurance, um, the cost to live, um, the marijuana, and then gambling. It's just for him and for a majority of people, it's just bonkers that it, it's not legalized yet. I think we're on the road, Tom. Um, but again, as I mentioned earlier, California is just such an odd state and things that get passed and bills out here are absolutely hilarious. And this is this is a money maker for the state that's struggling. So hopefully they can get out of their own way. But as you know, in the United States, we don't get out of our way a lot of times. So um, hopefully it'll come to fruition. But again, we'll see what happens on the 2020 ballot. Sort of moving on then into your relationship with with boxing and, and how you're so involved with the game. You up until fairly recently, I believe you were writing for ESPN. You, you still contribute to New York Fights and you've got your own recently launched your own YouTube show as well. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, how the ESPN um, relationship came about is, is um, again, Jay Cornegay over at the, um, the the Westgate Superbook and his partner in crime, Jeff Sherman, ESPN approached them and said, you know, do you know someone who's really sharp in boxing that could contribute to fights? And they thought of me. And when I was in Vegas, um, I started writing for Fight News at its embassy and just doing some you know, interviews with up and coming fighters. Um, it was a neat, it was a neat little gig and I got to meet a lot of fighters. It was my passion for me. It was for lack of better terms, fish in a bucket. I mean, I get to talk to fighters. You get to talk about something you're passionate about and then cover it and then do an article. And then when I moved to California, having to re-career, I, you know, I was really focused on my daughter at the time and getting my life straight as far as finding out what I was going to do for a living. Cause it was hard to leave Vegas. I was, you know, I was doing well there. I was very young, 
with regard to the industry. I was highly respected. So my relationship with Jay and Jeff, um, keeping intact with that, they told me about ESPN. And so we had some conversations and it was, it was amazing. I mean, ESPN is, is the, you know, 800 pound gorilla in the industry. And I was with them for about five years. I believe my first fight covering from them was the, um, Mayweather Canelo. And, um, when I first started out, I was just doing kind of like the article portion of it. And then I got this idea of there's so many sharp people out there and some of them far sharper than I would, you know, ever dream of being and adding them to the articles. We started with this kind of panel. Um, long story tolerable is things were going well. Um, I was on the um, Scott Van Pelt show, um, thought I knocked it out of the park. But after about three years, I had mentioned ESPN that I wanted to grow my brand and be used a little bit more exponentially with regard to more TV, radio. And unfortunately, that never came to, to fruition. So I made a value decision and decided that, you know, hey, ESPN gave me a shot. Um, great company. Still talk to the guys there. It just kind of became old hat and I wanted more. And um, do you remember the fighter, Devera Williamson, Touch of Sleep? He was a gentleman that I met and, and fighter in Vegas in around 2000, right before I moved. And it was at the old Cedric Kushner heavyweight explosion fights. And where I'm going with this is, is um, Devero and I became very good friends. Um, he was in my wedding. Um, we still talk. In fact, we talked last night. He was with Lou DeBella, and I had met Lou um, one of his fights. In fact, I think it was the Joe Macy fight where, unfortunately, he got um, beat pretty easily in the first round. So one thing good from ESPN is they mentioned I should get a Twitter. I didn't really know Twitter. wasn't really big on social media. And so um, I connected with Lou and we've been talking through the years and we'd have a lot of private conversations about fights and he knew I knew what I was talking about. So when I decided to leave ESPN, um, he had reached out to me immediately and said, I have an idea. And I said, well, let's talk. And so he came up with the name Taking Shots. Um, it's still in its infancy. Um, we are going to be growing that. But um, that's how the whole thing with um, with Debella came was just my relationship through Devero and keeping in contact with Lou and, and Lou's great people. And, you know, he's got a really sharp boxing mind. Um, I know that he's well-respected in the industry, but we talk a lot offline about fights and, and he sees some of the things that I do. So it's, um, it's absolute honor to be partnered with him. And we look forward to taking shots being, I think just a lot better than what we've produced so far. And um, it'll, it'll be a work in progress, but we already have sponsors lined up. Um, so it, it should be a really big show. And I think I'm hoping that it does well. Yeah, I'm certainly looking forward to it. I've, Lou is, um, I dropped his name in actually in, in the last episode. He's one of the um, the guys I can always listen to talk about boxing. He's a guy with so many stories and, he, you know, he's been through the real nitty gritty in terms of the business side of, of the sport. So he's, he's, yeah, I think he's a fascinating character. Um, to kind of give you a chance to, to, to plug the show, what's what's it all about? Um, taking Shots? Sure, it's um, it's got it's a it's got a YouTube channel um, just called Taking Shots with Johnny Wilds and Lou DiBella, and the, and the premise of the show is is going to start the show by taking a shot. Um, sometimes they're rougher than than other times, um, <laughs> but that was Lou's um, idea. And then what I kind of like is is bringing in the panel of people um, like Jim Karras, Evan Young. Um, there's a lot of people on the panel that that I get their opinion, and we always don't agree. But I think what it does is it gives the better opinions of people that they can trust and so it's very hard unless you have a line really out of whack where you have basically you know everyone picking one fighter it does happen but there's some valued opinions there and if you know through the time when the panel says something it's usually pretty close 
to, to happening. So we may not all agree, but I think it just gives a different avenue versus, let's say, myself saying, um, I think fighter A is going to be fighter B because of this. Adding fighters, um, you know, younger ones that, that know the game, like Jamel Herring and Julian J. Rock Williams and Breadman Edwards, his trainer, and Ice Scully. I think because I have those intimate relationships, we chat on the phone. It's not always about boxing. They, they have a trust with me that I'll never, you know, do anything that's going to hurt them. It's it's 100% when I quote them. I don't add to it. I don't subtract from it. Um, so I think it's going to be a little bit different than what's out there. But the end result is, is just providing the betters with an avenue of, of trusted opinions so they can put their hard money they're working for to, to work. As you say, it's still kind of very much in its... Um in its infancy but I'm certainly looking forward to to seeing what's to come I, I've noticed actually that Lou I, I certainly haven't seen Lou taking any shots himself so I think he might have um pulled a fast one on you there I, I don't disagree Lou is a character he did promise me though when he comes out to um La La Land that's what I refer to as California um he promised you we we're going to sit down and I'm looking forward to it um because he wants to tell me some some stories about what he's been through and the not so fun side of boxing and that for me would be a huge interest I mean I know boxing is a very very challenging sport with how fighters are treated how things happen on the back end and that would be for me a three-hour conversation minimum just to pick his brain and listen absolutely absolutely so going back then to the the, the kind of betting process itself then how would you describe your your style as a, as a punter in, in a few words what what's your kind of general what's your kind of general strategy or or, or approach these days when you're when you're weighing up a bet Sure. Um, the biggest thing for me is, and I've shared this with, with other people, is you gotta you gotta learn to make lines on a fight. It, it's hard, um, but you gotta be able to make your own line. So what I've always suggested is, for me, it just came second nature. But have a way to to look at a fight and see you have fighter A versus fighter B, um, where the public should be betting, you know, or you think they're gonna be putting their money. And then make that line. And let's say that you make a fighter three or four to one and it comes out, pick them. You should be able to trust in your number that, that you're that you're getting value because you, you can't bet every four fight on the board just to bet it. You're, you're never going to make money doing that. you got to pick and choose your spots. And the more that you watch, and I've shared before, is I have every fight possible recorded. And so when I hear a fight supposedly going to get made is I start making a number and massage it. And then when the number comes out, I can deviate from it. Is it right on or is it a horrible number? And if it's a horrible number, then I'd like to have my action on it. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that's um, sound advice really. What's the kind of margin for error that you allow yourself before saying, okay, this line is out of certainly out of whack from where I think it should be. Therefore that makes it a bet. Is there an automatic trigger point or is it a case by case? okay, well, this line, I, I, I disagree with this number, however, and, and then kind of you reevaluate your entire process or you do say, well, hang on, I know forward in my own judgment, this is wrong. I'm going to back that straight away. Yeah, that's that's what's the hard part is you have to, to have, you know, you're, you have to have the ability to say, okay, you're respecting your number enough, but you can be wrong and it happens. So, if, you know, you will use small numbers. If you think a fight should be two to one, and it comes 12 to one, don't just think immediately, oh, there's extreme value, you know, I because you could be wrong. So I think, in, you know, in trusting and building relationships with people within the industry and, you know, running that by them and, and leveraging those relationships helps. So for me is if something sticks out really, really strong is I, I keep massaging a number and making sure I didn't make a mistake, but there's no real trigger point. It's more of is where was the number that I made? 
where do I think the value is? And then always picking people's brain. You know, I'm not perfect in, in my approach. So sometimes I think I see something and then I'll get corrected and say, no, Johnny, actually, this is this is why the number is like that. And, you know, something to be brought to my attention. So um, I think making your number and leveraging relationships of people that you, you trust and respect is is more beneficial than just, you know, going up and firing on a fight because you think it's bad. And how much of your time then is spent watching watching tape, um, studying studying film, or is it more of a numbers-based approach that you look at to say, well, okay, I have a spreadsheet and I have a model here and I have a rating system and fighter A equals this number and fighter B equals this number, therefore? No, I, I have a spreadsheet with certain values I put on fighters. Um, I would say that I watch probably no less than five to seven hours a week of, um, of fights um, that I can't watch live for, for reasons, you know, family stuff comes up or just busy. Um, so I do about five to seven hours of watching fights, looking for tendencies. Um, you know, how did a guy really come out in the fight? Um, if he went 12 rounds, was it a 12 round war or did he coast? Um, so it's a combination of using the power ratings or power systems, however you want to say it, um, watching fights. And then also too, is trying to gauge where the, the public is going to bet because there's obviously public fighters, um, like in the sport team world, you know, you have public teams like, you know, in college football, my favorite squad is Notre Dame and they're always overvalued and, you know, the New England Patriots. And then in fighting, you have Manny Pacquiao, um, who, you know, gets the public money. You have fighters like Errol Spence, um, who's very, very popular. He seems to be the, um, the hot topic right now. So kind of judging where you can find your spots based on those, those public fighters, that you know, are going to get a ton of the public action. What would you say then is your kind of your favorite angle of attack? Is it your do you tend to stick to the outright markets that the winner of a fight? Do you look particularly at the, the method of victory or the over under? Where do you kind of tend to gravitate towards? I like sides. Um, I've never been good at totals. Um, I've learned to be a little bit better, of, better at them. Um, that was one of my weaknesses because, you know, sometimes the numbers come in and fight is like, a, you know, nine and a half rounds. And my initial number was maybe seven, but through the years I've gotten better. So I prefer sides. For instance, you go back to Tyson Fury's last fight and, you know, they made that thing nine and a half rounds and, and I thought it was closer to five rounds and look what happened. So, but um, I prefer sides and, you know, I don't lay anything usually higher than five or six to one. Um, it's just too hard to get the money back. So I try to find value with dogs and um, it seems to do well. And, and the people that follow, they seem to do well with it. So in, in terms of your, your staking then, do you have a, a kind of a, a rigid staking system or is, do you have kind of certain categories or this is a, a category A a bet because the margin, I make the margins this much or? No, I'm, I, I'm kind of old school. I don't believe in five star plays or one star plays. Um, yeah. Of course, sometimes things come up where you have, you know, a line that's completely whacked and you think that, you know, you have a little bit better shot. But I think if you're going to have longevity in this game, um, you should in my opinion, um, I can't tell someone to do it with what their pocketbook is just to be consistent um, with your betting approach. So if you're a $100 better or a $500 better, just make sure that you're consistent with that because there's going to be ebb and flow where you do lose. And that's why I kind of stay away from those five to six to one fights, because if you lose a couple of them, then you need to hit a couple of dogs just to get close to back to what you invested. So for me, bankroll management being consistent, but also recognizing when something's off is to just bump it up a little bit. There's no need to go three or four times. Again, in my opinion, it's just to be consistent because if you're not consistent in this game, you're going to be consistently out of money. Okay. So kind of separately from what we've touched on there, then if you, you mentioned the word longevity, 
you're someone who's been around the sport, um, particularly on the betting side for a, a number of years now. If you were to give some advice to someone who is maybe just starting out or someone who is very, very casual in their their betting approach, maybe wanted to take it a little bit more seriously, what would be the number one kind of best advice you could give to someone? Uh, networking. Um, it's it's paramount, I think, in any type of industry that you're in, whether it's you're going to be a gambler or whether you're in sales or marketing, whatever is, is relationships and leverage them. Um, connect with good people, honest people, um, and then you're going to gain their trust and you're, you're picking their brain and not always thinking that your your side or your thought is the, the correct one. Um, be open-minded enough to say that there's people that are a little bit sharper, a little bit better and pick their brain. So um, relationships and, and leveraging those relationships and, you know, don't just always, you know, ping Tom, what are your thoughts on the fight? Generally care and, and build that relationship so you, you become more intimate. And it's not just about boxing. You're talking about life and the challenges, the ebb and flow. And I think that would be my number one recommendation is, is, is connecting with good, solid people. And you touched on it earlier that actually what you know isn't necessarily the be all and end all. I think Twitter is quite a, you come across a lot of very, very, um, what's the word, kind of bloody minded individuals, let's say, really, really kind of pig headed, stubborn minded, and, you know, people who really believe in what, how they see a fight. The way that certainly the way that they they talk is that there's no real margin for persuasion or convincing otherwise everything is black and white and this is how I see it and therefore you are wrong and it's that kind of conversation that isn't really ever going to be fruitful for for a better because you're you're looking for or certainly yourself you're opening up to other people to say hey look this is how I see it how do you see it do you disagree okay if you disagree then then great tell me why um, and I'll take that on board particularly when it's someone you you kind of respect anyway that's very very true you, you can never really stop learning in certainly in this sport it's almost for lack of better terms the inmates are running the asylum sometime on twitter um i i think that um there's some opinions out there that they've never been wrong and um it's their way or the highway and you know there's the block and mute button you know you got to separate yourself and find out the people that are you know just have good value as far as what they're contributing um their information they're getting um sometimes people are really connected with trainers um, they know the fighters. So if if you're not leveraging those type of relationships, then frankly, shame on you. I wanted to pick your brains actually on, on something we ran in the last show, and I thought it was fun enough to run again. And that would be on the subject of, well, it, we'll do it in two parts. One is your your favorite ever bet or or bet that, that springs to mind when someone says, Johnny, tell me a story about a, a fantastic bet came in that you're particularly proud of or it, it kind of surprised you. And then to turn it on its head, and kind of maybe regale the story of uh, your, you know, your worst beat, a, a bet that failed you at the last minute or one that went spectacularly wrong, one that maybe you thought was was an absolute lock um, and blew up in your face. Are there any there that spring to mind? Absolutely. Um, Tyson Holyfield won. Um, I, I grew up watching Holyfield and, of course, Tyson. And for some reason, I just always felt that Evander Holyfield, if he fought him in – you know, 92 or 97, whenever the fight was going to be made, Evander was going to be at the very best he could be. And I watched so many times where Evander did something very great. And the first question out of the announcer's mouth was, you know, what about Tyson? Um, so when they opened that fight at the MGM at minus 2,500 plus 1,800, uh, Gene Keevy lost his job over that. I was on campus at UNLV and I've told the story before was, there was this kid that was really sharp in golf of all things. And so I outsourced for, for golf. I didn't know it. I didn't want to make numbers on it. 
And he was continually beating us pretty good in golf. And he had yelled down to me, hey, Johnny, what do you make um, Tyson Holyfield one? And I'm like, you know, maybe, you know, nine, ten to one. You know, you know, I, I didn't really put a lot of thought into it. Um, I wasn't going to put it up for a little bit of time. I wanted to, to look at it closer. And he said, well, you have a bet over at MGM. They made it 25-18. And I'm like, get out of here. So I got one of the early numbers on the plus 1,800 on, um, on Holyfield. Um, I thought that, again, it was a horrible line, but I thought that the Evander Holyfield that fought that fight was the one that was going to fight that fight no matter when they fought. He could dig deep, and I know he looked bad against Chez before, and you know there were magazines coming out that he was going to die in the ring. And for me, it was Evander was his whole career was based on Mike Tyson, so I knew I'd get a, a great, great effort by um, Holyfield tonight, and obviously. Um, he did. He came. He came through, and so a lot of casinos got buried. Uh, we did not. Um, I lowered the uh, number at Harris. Um, we had a lot of exposure with with Wise Guy Tyson money early, but the problem was is people were just coming up to the window and they didn't want to put up let's say nine hundred to win a hundred on Tyson, but they wanted to bet the fight. So, oh, give me fifty on Holyfield then. And those those small bets really um, led to a lot of exposure. Um, we only lost around 80,000 and my boss was not happy with it, but I told him when the file numbers came out on Monday, he'd be very proud of what I did. And, um, so we, we were fortunate to only lose 80. Well, the gentleman over at the MGM has mentioned lost his job over it because of how much money they lost with probably the most ridiculous line I've seen in the history of boxing. Great story. What about the other way around then? Uh, Whitaker Chavez. Whitaker Chavez. I'm still bitter okay, party okay. one on that, Tom. Um, you know, I, I had him by decision. I had him by the side on the side. And I just, to this day, don't see how that fight, that fight is a draw. Um, you know, I think Adelaide Bird could have even done a better job on, on that, those scorecards. So um, that one um, has always been bitter with me, um, never sat well with me. I thought it, Whitaker was an easy winner. So um, that was a, a horrible, horrible beat. And I just, to this day, I'm bitter about it. <laughs> Can you remember what price you had on, on Whitaker? I had him, I think, at five to one by decision. And then like um, plus two and a quarter, plus two fifty maybe on the side. Um, I think that was the number I had, but but most of it was on the decision. And um, I didn't think he could stop, you know, Julio by any means. But I thought he could box his ears off, and I think he did. Even now, the fact that that is held up as the prime example of a a robbery in boxing kind of tells the story. And for you to be on the on the receiving end, as it were, is <laughs> um, probably going to live on for for quite a while. You're listening to The Boxing Betting Show. On to the weekend then. It's a fight weekend that's actually a lot less appealing than the weekends of uh, Mexican independence celebrations of late, of recent years. Obviously, we could have had Canelo Golovkin part three in recent years. We've had parts one and two, Mayweather Canelo, Mayweather Marquez and so on. This year, we'll, we'll kind of have to make do with what we've got. I'm finding it hard to get too excited about some of it. The quality and, and matchmaking is a bit patchy at best, so we'll, we'll zip through this a little bit. And this probably tells the, the story for a lot of the cards at the moment at the time of recording. There isn't even a, a method of victory market for some fights so looking at just at the outright. So kind of shows that there's not a great deal of interest in, in what's going on. Friday night in New York, we have the matchroom card headlined by Devin Haney against Sauer Abdullayev. Laughably for the, the interim WBC lightweight title makes perfect sense considering Lomachenko fought for the full version less than two weeks ago. Devin Haney, generally a huge 1-25 to favourite, 1-20, to some 1-33. However you look at it, he's obviously a, a landslide kind of odds-on shot. 
Abdullayev then the best price 11 to 1, as short as 9 to 1, some 10 to 1 obviously in the middle, and the draw 25 to 1, 33 to 1 at best. Johnny, my initial reaction was that, that was actually a little bit wide. Abdullayev is obviously the underdog, but he, he was a decent amateur. He's adapted actually very well to the pros, 11 fights in, 7 KOs. Not a, I don't think he's going to be a kind of blue chip prospect in the way that Haney is, but he's he's got a bit about him, lovely left hook. Haney obviously had no adult kind of amateur experience at all, turned pro at 16, still just 20, but there are high, high hopes for him. We last saw him back in May, spectacular KO of Antonio Moran. Wasn't figured to be a test for Haney, but nor really has anyone. Um, and his last few fights, he's been priced about the same, about 1 to 20 favour every single time. Is there any action for you in that main event, Johnny? Um, I think the world of Abdulev, I think he's, um, if that's how you pronounce his last name, I, I think the kid, like you mentioned, his left hook, um, he sits on it very, very well. Um, the challenge here is he's taking a big step up. Um, for me, Haney is the real deal. He's the truth. Um, he's a very, very good boxer. So for me, it'll be a pass. Um, I thought he'd be about a 20 to one favorite, maybe 22. So it's right around where I thought it would be. Um, I think it just sets up for, for, for Haney very well. I'm taking nothing away from um, Zauer. He's a, he's a good fighter, but just um, it's a pass for me. How do you see that fight going then if I was to put you on the spot and ask for a prediction? Is it a decision for Haney? Um, I, I think Haney's going to be taking longer than he's had in the past. Um, I lean towards a later round stoppage. I was watching some tape on Abdullayev. Haney, who, who's kind of sitting down a bit more in his shots than he, he used to. I think he might be a bit too busy for Abdullayev. I think he's, he could potentially overwhelm him late on, as you say. And he's he's very, very active fighter in terms of his output. I think, yeah, I, I, I could see that, if not a kind of really wide Haney decision. But it's something to keep to, to watch, though, because because Auer is not going to have a, a career. It's going to be based just on this fight. Um, so I think that um, he'll he'll show the world that, you know, he's a, he's a very, very sound fighter. It's just I think he's just a little he's a little overwhelmed here, overmatched. Moving on to the best fight of the weekend on paper. Certainly one of the most interesting. Michael Hunter versus Sergey Kuzmin. Hunter is a favorite three to ten. So uh, minus 300 ish, a little bit shorter, actually. He opened at uh, minus 250, so two to five. But he has attracted some money since down as low as one to four, um, two to nine, so minus 400, minus 450. So there's been a bit of support for him. Kuzmin, the Russian, is at three to one, plus 300, or slightly south of that, so plus 275, which is 11 to four in uh, UK money. Uh, draw 25 to one and up. I think this is quite an intriguing one. Hunter, obviously a very good boxer, good mover, good technician, really. Kuzmin, too, is, is technically very sound, very, very good amateur career but has that typical Eastern European straight-up style. Certainly got power. I think he's certainly the, the puncher of the two. Kuzmin didn't look very very impressive, really, against um, Joey DeVeco back in March, but I believe he was carrying a bit of a shoulder injury in that as well. Prior to that, Kuzmin beat an injured man himself in, in David Price last September. Hunter, we saw him ask Usyk a few questions, but Hunter also stopped uh, Martin Bicoli on the road. Alexander Ustinov, Fabio Maldonado, sort of shot-worn opposition of late, but he, he can really fight. Is it going to be the case then that, that Kuzmin is a little bit too mobile? He's he's kind of a, a big lump. Is this just a good star matchup for Hunter? I think so. Um, I thought the number was a little low on the opener, and it's being reflected. I think they open him up like at two and a quarter. Um, I thought he would be more close to 455 to one. Um, the, the punters are actually, I think, um, seeing that. That's why I think you've seen him bet up. Um, yeah. I, I think Hunter's going to be, 
going to be okay. I mean, listen, there's nothing wrong with having a loss to Usyk on your uh, your record. I mean, we both know that Usyk's a special um, animal, if you will. Um, so I, I think here, just on pedigree, and you mentioned something that 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 Eastern European style um, that Kuzmin has, I just don't think it bodes well for him um, here. I think Hunter's too active for him, and I think um, it, it'll be a, it'll be a win for him. Um, I think it'll be a tougher fight than maybe people think, but um, I definitely I, I lean towards Hunter there. Were you one of those that managed to get the early money on on Hunter then, the early price? No, uh, no outlets to get the early money. So that's one of the challenges with with no places here and sure. people um, are given very small limits. So um, I try to never be, let's say, overzealous in my approach and say, oh, well, can you, you get me some of yours? Because that takes away from them. OK, OK. What price then out of interest would you would you make Kuzmin to become a bet? I think anything at plus five, five to one, because um, you're only yep. going to get plus three fifty four dollars. So anything above five to one would be worth the play. I mean, he can fight. Um, he's he's a big boy, but he um, he's in tough here. But there wouldn't be no, there wouldn't be anything wrong with taking him. Let's say it you know five to one. Um, he's going to have him, I think, by about two inches, a little bit on reach. So if he can dig deep and you know use some of that that background he has, the Russian kid can fight. I remember he beat um, Joe Joyce back in the amateurs. You know he he's a very good fighter, um, and he can he can certainly bang. Moving on then to the Las Vegas card, the top-ranked Queensbury co-promotion, Tyson Fury against Otto Wallen. Fury, obviously, really the, the huge, huge favourite, 1-25 to 25, uh, at best, obviously shorter than that in places as well. Otto Wallen, 10-1 to 1 underdog. In places, I've seen him quoted at 16, uh, 1,600, 16-1, to 1, so huge, huge outsider. It's a Brit versus a Swede on Mexican Independence Day weekend. It's not your typical uh, Vegas Headliner, look, I'm struggling to think of a more cynical kind of back-to-back sequence, to be honest, than Tom Swartz and Otto Wallen for a self-professed kind of world champion like Fury is. To give some context, Otto Wallen, he was meant to fight BJ Flores in July. Um, that, that fight fell through. But that gives you an idea of where Otto Wallen is with his kind of career development so far. Fury's last fight against Tom Swartz, I've managed to Dutch um, Fury in round one at 20 to one and round two, 25 to one. So actually it was a very nice result. But still, I'm not going to buy into the fact that he's some kind of heavyweight destroyer of worlds. The simple fact was that Tom Swartz was a kind of a gross mismatch. This is just a kind of a standard mismatch, if you will. Um, how, how do you see it? Yeah, I mean, Tyson Fury for me is is a problem for, for any fighter. Um, in the heavyweight division. Um, we saw it against Wilder. Um, you know, I don't even think that was the best Tyson Fury that night. Um, he was, you know, just starting to get his life back together. He strung, he strung some wins together. I, I think the world of, of Tyson Fury, I think he's, again, a problem for anyone. Um, I do think that his opponent is a step up from Schwartz, um, but he's severely outgunned. And I think Tyson wants to spark him. He wants to keep this um, newfound power that he's you know stating that he's sitting down on his punches uh, we saw it against a severely outmatched Schwartz I don't think we see the seventh round I've seen some eight and a half rounds pop up um, I think it's going to be the fight will probably be more exciting to watch his ring entrance being Mexican Independence Day we both know that Tyson's off the charts bonkers nuts um, his outfit will probably be more exciting than the fight um, <laughs> but I think eight and a half rounds is a little too uh, lofty um, and I did see that um, posted overseas, but um, the the books in Vegas uh, don't have it up yet. But um, I would definitely expect him to to put on a performance that um, gets this Wilder to fight. If Wilder can beat 
Ortiz, which is no gimme um, in November. So um, I look for Tyson to settle business before before seven. Some prices on that then. This is the, the fight that, as you might expect, has been priced up most comprehensively in the UK this weekend. Over under 8.5 rounds. Over 8.5 is even money. Under is 8 to 11, so minus 137. 7.5 rounds, you're looking at minus 120 the pair, so 5 to 6 a pair there. That's the, the kind of the level the level split. Um, and 4 to 11, so minus 275 that we do go into the sixth round. So the bookies are, are actually slightly favouring that we will see see a few rounds here. Method of victory, like Fury, is 1 to 3, so minus 300 to win inside the distant 20 KOs from 28 wins. Actually, you look at the numbers, that makes him look like a real puncher, but we, we know that he doesn't always fight like that. I, I agree that he can fight better than he did against Wilder, and I had him winning that fight. But certainly, I think the, the onus is on him to make a statement here and do similar do a similar job on, on Wallin to what he did against Swartz. Fury then, 6-4, um, so plus 150 to win inside the first six. For him to win inside the second half of the fight, 15-8, to eight, so plus... 188 and minus 300 so one to three not to go the distance at all i think it's it's very difficult to make a case for wanting to win the fight the odds reflect that you're, you're talking 12 to 1 and up to 22 to 1 for him to win by ko and between 20 to 1 and 40 to 1 to win the, the decision so you know enormous enormous prices for for otto wallin um nonetheless look, I, I i think we might be slightly on the other side of the street here wallin is is as you say, he's a couple of notches better than than Swartz. Hasn't really been tested as a pro. His best win was a, a decision last year against Adrian Granat. But he's he's a big guy. He's a southpaw. I think I would be siding with rounds. The I quite like the over 8.5. Played similar on Lomachenko-Campbell in, in the um, big fight weekend, and, and that paid off nicely. So maybe that's me being a, a bit of a creature of habit but that i think that's got some appeal 250 on the fury decision five to two holds some appeal as well and i actually think that there's that there was an interesting bet i saw with labrix which was seven to two for the fury ud this very specific unanimous decision there so plus 350 so a little bit better if you so i think if you are of the persuasion that fury is going to fail to get one out of there and it, that's a big ask obviously the the chunkier price on Fury to win the unanimous is obviously more appealing than than the straight decision. It's hard to see Wallen running in close on the on the cards. Do you have any interest in the side markets there? Yeah, I mean, just just right there is an example of of listening to other people's opinion. Um, you know, it's initially I'm looking at the under the under eight and a half, but in hearing you, you know, there there is some some value um, on the decision. There is some value on the over. So um, I'll I'll probably re-examine. Um, and, and look at it. So, I mean, I think if one point from the show that the listeners are getting is, is that you can get a lot of different opinions and it can help sway you into a win versus a loss. So I'll be looking at it closer. Um, I think Ben Davidson is uh, one of the, the most underrated trainers out there. Um, I like what he's doing with Fury. I, I think the world of Fury, my, my wife absolutely adores that man. She got to see him <laughs> fight against Wilder. Um, and it was, it was amazing that we were able to do that. And be part of that event, but um, I, I, yeah, I'm gonna relook at it. So again, I think if one thing from the show, Tom, is, is you know listening to other people's opinion is is paramount to one success in this business. And one final fight, actually, that you you kind of flagged up when we were discussing the um, the agenda, as it were, was the battle of the Jose's um, Pedraza against uh, Zapida. Pedraza then the 
four to seven, so one seventy-five favourite or eight to thirteen favourite minus one six two. We saw him bounce back in May after that decision loss um, to Lomachenko. Obviously, no disgrace in that. Zapita, best known to the UK fans, at least, for kind of being stopped quite quickly by Terry Flanagan a few years ago. Zapita is the puncher in the matchup. But for me, there's a bit of a um, a, a golfing class here from from what we've seen so far, if Pedraza is what he was. I, I'm definitely in agree with you there. Um, I, I lean towards uh, Pedraza in the fight. Um, the yeah. opener was a little bit low. Um, I think that um, he's he's a really really good fighter. Uh, not taking anything away from Zapeda, I believe he's thirty and two. So yeah, it, it's going to be interesting. I mean, again, it's like kind of like the Usyk fight we were talking about earlier. There's nothing wrong with having a Lomachenko loss on your record. There there really isn't. Um, what stands out to me was the the, the Raymond uh, Ramondo or Raymond whatever you want to call him Beltron win. Um, I thought that was a a good a good win for Sniper, um, and that's. You know, Zapata, so I, I lean towards him in the fight. I, I think he gets it done. You know, Zapata is a good fighter, don't get me wrong, but I think he's he's bitten off a little bit more than he can chew here. He's going to have his hands full, in my opinion. I mean, um, nothing wrong with losing to, I think it was Jose Carlos um, Ramirez. And then um, you mentioned the Flanagan fight. Um, I think it's just a little bit different pedigree, if you will, here. Yeah, I agree. I think if, if Pedraza's on his game and, and the fighter we've seen him be against, even against Lomachenko, but, you know, Stephen Smith, he pretty much outboxed him that night. I think he's a, he's quite a classy um, sort of operator. And Zapata's going to need a knockout, I think, and for sure he's going to go for one. But, yeah, I think there could be a little bit of value there in, in Pedraza outright. Yeah, I think it's it's a little bit low. So um, I'm, that's where I'm leaning on that one for sure. If then I can just put you on the spot and ask for your 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 one bet for the weekend, if you had to single it down to one, what would it be? Hunter. Hunter outright. Yeah, I, I think um, I think he's I think he's got some some really strong skills. Um, I like him as a fighter, and I, I think Hunter's low here. So, um, in my opinion, Hunter. You know what? I think if I don't mention it now, after after pointing out, I'm going to regret it. I'm going to say Fury over eight point. Uh, no, let's say Fury over seven point five rounds. I think that's a, still a decent price at five to six minus one twenty. Fury. Versus one in over 7.5 rounds. I'm going to ride that with you then. Um, I like your style. I know you know what you're talking about. So, um, yeah, I can't wait. That's going to be a fun one. Uh, Johnny, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. It's been a, a real pleasure. Um, no, thank you, Tom. It's been too long coming that we got to speak. Um, you're, you're definitely one of the, the better people on uh, Twitter. Wish you nothing but success with your show. And, and thank you so much for having me on. Next up, then, we are going to look back a couple of weekends to the Lomachenko-Campbell card from the O2. Of course, we could talk about the brilliance of Lomachenko that night or the game effort of Luke Campbell. That's ground that's kind of all been covered by now elsewhere. Instead, I want to look at the heavyweight chief support, which was Alexander Povetkin against Huey Fury. The story of the fight, Fury was widely outpointed, really. Uh, three cards of 117-111. Might have raised a few eyebrows um, for how fair they actually were. I think a few people were expecting a bit of home cooking, potentially. More notably, though, at least from the point of view of this show, were some very unusual betting patterns in the hours leading up to the fight. And it was uh, it was an afternoon that got a few people quite excited. We, we saw a rush of bets, if not money, on Huey Fury, a guy not exactly known for being a knockout artist, to win in round two. Opening price on that obviously varied, but if you were to take a spread of firms, it would have been 33 to 1, 66 to 1, 100 to 1, 50 to 1. 
Now the price tumbled all Saturday. First flag to me when it was 16 to 1, um, so already less than half the price it would have started at. It was a price that continued to be cut back into 10 to 1 with Bet365 around 4pm, even shorter, 8 to 1 with Skybet. And that money just kept on coming really, not long before the opening bell, around 8pm, Huey Fury, quite incredibly, was 11 to 2, so plus 5.50 to win in the second round with Paddy Power Betfair. Needless to say, what looked to be something fairly ridiculous from the start went on to look even more ridiculous by the end of round two. That passage came and went without any incident, much like the rest of the fight, and the bookies collected. Now I'll get on to why it was so ridiculous in a second, but let's start with the supposed outcome. Unless he had some kind of knuckle duster, the idea that Fury would stop Alexander Povetkin, who's only lost still to Klitschko, Anthony Joshua, and went rounds with both of them, the idea that Fury would stop Povetkin at all, let alone inside two rounds, was absurd, um, and probably would have been one of the most remarkable heavyweight results of the year, regardless of any fix. Where did all this come from then? Incredibly, it seems to be started by nothing more than a WhatsApp rumour. A few people sent me the smoking gun, as it were, which was a, a voice memo from someone passing on the news that the Russian was supposed to be going down in round two. That the guy had just been to the bookies himself, he had 200 quid on it, and that the price was being cut even while he was in the shop. Sounds a bit like an urban legend already. Now, whether that's true or not, someone else tweeted me to say that they'd seen someone have similar money on it the evening before. The idea that Povetkin was somehow going to take a dive in round two was all nonsense, of course, but this seems to have been perpetuating a rumour that was already out there. What happened next was that word continued to spread and plenty more people wanted to have a piece of it, almost with the mentality of, well, just in case, if this lands and I'm not on it, I'm going to kick myself. Now, round betting in boxing terms is probably third or fourth down the list. You see the big stakes come in on the outrights, the method of victory, sometimes over under rounds, possibly group rounds, but very rarely will you see some serious money coming in on the specific round market. What that means is that it doesn't take very much money to move the market one way or another, particularly when it's a fight of this magnitude. It's likely that we didn't see it here either. You might have had one or two backing it for three figures earlier, 200 quid, 250, 500 quid. That would have been enough to cut the prices accordingly anyway. And the market is such that when you're looking at a screen and a long list of prices, it's quite easy to see when something is way out of line. Now, maybe someone's seen that who hasn't put any money on it and they've started a rumour out of surprise or maybe just for a little bit of mischief on a Saturday afternoon. Of course, if sufficient money comes in on one outcome being offered, the layers have to manage their liabilities by cutting the price. That's literally how it works. Were the bookmakers running scared of a fix? I don't think so, and here's why. More likely is that hundreds of smaller bets came in on Fury in round two as the rumour spread. £5, £10, £20, £50. Not serious stakes by any means, but in terms of quantity of bets rather than the size of bet, it's likely that round two saw more action than any other by a long distance. That's plenty enough in a small market to move a line from 50 to 1 to 10 to 1, and in this context it's a pretty big shift. It's a little bit like Grand National Day where... Every man and his dog gets involved. Populist money drives something to where it shouldn't be, based generally on not a lot of knowledge. Here's why it always looked like nothing. 
Firstly, if there was anything actually going on, we'd have seen bigger stakes and bigger price drops. 10 to 1 would have dropped to 11 to 2, yeah, but why would it have stopped there? 11 to 2 is more than five times your outlay. It's 500% return. That's enormous. Why on earth would bets just slow to a trickle if some kind of legitimate word had got out? Why not back it down towards on? Well, the short answer is this. The bets slowed down and the prices then tapered off because the number of people willing to get involved dried up. In other words, everyone who wanted to put a bet on the supposed fix did. Secondly, even just a quick look at the bet for exchange showed next to no money on the market and even less in line waiting to be matched on round two. Now, ask yourself this. If there was good word of a fix, wouldn't people be queuing up at what was a bigger price than bookmakers are offering? Why was there no depth in the market? Simple answer is that not a lot of people were interested or enough people to make this even relatively credible. Thirdly, or whatever number it is we're on by now, is that all the other prices held firm. There was no movement whatsoever other than what was happening anyway that day. And that was relatively static. It wasn't a, a busy, wasn't a set of prices that was fluctuating. So what that means is that the Fury KO price, the Fury price to win in rounds one to three group betting, one to six group betting, fight to go the distance, all stay static. Of course, that was always going to be the case because the round price didn't get below even money. It stayed at 11 to two. So you had no reason to be backing the smaller prices. But if it had, you'd surely have seen the related markets contract. It's a little bit like, and, and you see it a lot less these days, I think, lower league Italian football or, or soccer towards the end of a season. You tended to see all sorts of huge moves on the draw backed into silly prices, one to three on when one certain team needed a favour from the other to push for promotion or needed to secure a point to avoid relegation. Now, sometimes they landed, more often than not, they didn't. That might still be going on. I pay, I pay a lot less attention to it these days. And I think certainly post-2006 with the Calcio Poly scandal, U, the Juventus relegation, I'd expect it to have tightened up a bit. But for many years, it was a bit of a free-for-all. I digress. People backing a fixed or perceived dodgy draw in the football meant that obviously the price on the draw came in. But those weren't the only ones. What would happen is that the prices related to it would also be affected. So, for example, the prices on the correct score, nil-nil, one-all, would also come in. The idea being that those were the most common draw score lines. If you're fixing a, a game of football and you need it to be a draw, nil-nil, one-all, those are probably the most likely routes. The prices on under 2.5 goals, for example, the idea being that it would be easier to fix a draw by the result of nothing much happening in the game than lots of stuff happening and teams drawing 2-2 or 3-3. In the case of Fury Povetkin, the related markets didn't. There was no need for them to because the weight of money wasn't strong enough. Across the board, the weight of money wasn't strong enough to, to indicate that this is a gamble to be taken seriously. Why wasn't it strong enough? Well, because the whole thing is rubbish. It was a, a strange kind of phantom gamble, really, but looking at the way the markets moved that afternoon, never really one that registered as something truly untoward going on. Had the bookies been concerned, they would have eventually suspended betting. That price tells you that the odds makers themselves were never actually too worried about it. In adjusting their prices, they were merely reacting to the drips and drabs of money that kept incoming in order to study out their books. Even if that totaled hundreds or thousands more, in terms of separate transactions than it otherwise would have.
Nonetheless, the curious case of Fury Perfection got me thinking about a few other notable gambles over recent years where something has either looked amiss or people have claimed it might be. You'd have to be naive to think that fixes, dives or betting coups never happen in boxing or indeed most other sports, but generally these things either go under the radar or they're a lot more sophisticated than someone lumping on 200 quid on the back of a mate telling him a world-class pro like Povetkin is implicated in some kind of fallover job. Thinking then about examples of other gambles that we've seen in boxing. Some of you might remember this one. Ricky Burns versus Nicky Cook, eight years ago now. Burns was the firm favourite, as you'd expect, to defend his super featherweight title, and he stopped Nicky Cook inside the very first round. I say first round, it was about 90 seconds. Ricky Burns landed, and Cook went down immediately, holding his back. Um, ended up being stretched out of the arena, and it was described at the time as a freak accident. Now, like Huey Fury, Ricky Burns wasn't known as a puncher. At the time, he stopped about one in four of his opponents. Now, bookies actually suspended betting on that fight due to suspicious activity. There was a flood of money on Ricky Burns to win in round three, placed specifically in their spots in East London, where Nicky Cook was born, and he was fighting out of Dagenham, which, as those local will know, isn't very far away at all. Now, the big money was coming in on Burns, but it kept coming, as you'd expect it to. And even when the prices were cut, the weight of money was actually enough this time to get bookmakers to act. Now, it's that notion of geography, and that's also something that separates it from the Fury Povetkin example. If someone is indeed in the know, they, themselves, their friends, would all be rushing to the nearest high street. It's sort of a concentrated hive of activity. I managed to dig a quote out from uh, William Hill, uh, spokesman Graham Sharp. It says... We saw lots of activity in and around East London shops on Friday evening and deliberately cut our price for Burns to win in round three to the shortest that was available at the time, 10 to 1, but we continued to lay it. We were never bigger than 14 to 1, which is what initially sparked our concern. We began to see more bets than expected for a price that was readily available at longer odds elsewhere. As we'd heard other bookies were seeing the same pattern, we decided to suspend the round market and reported it to the Gambling Commission. Now, it was stated, and you'd have to believe, that Cook passed all his medicals. But this was his first fight in over six years away from the ring, and he ended up with a prolapsed disc in his back from what looked like a fairly innocuous shot. So, why round three? Now, maybe someone knew something wasn't quite right with Cook, or that he was unlikely to last as many rounds, and that information was then leaked to family, friends, and so on. It could have been a case of Chinese whispers. It was specifically round three that was backed in. But was it people putting two and two together and ending up with something that never was? Either way, the theory behind the bets might have been correct, but the outcome wasn't. And so the bookies on that occasion dodged a bullet. Another huge gamble we've seen recently, albeit one in very different circumstances and driven by something I believe completely different, was the pro debut of Michael Conlon. If you cast your mind back, it was St. Patrick's Day, March 2017, at Madison Square Garden. The opponent was a guy called Tim Ibarra, a guy who'd won four and lost four as a pro. As you'd expect for the debut of a much-hyped prospect like Conlon, Ibarra was a guy who it was reasoned Conlon could do whatever he wanted with. Now, the market in question was, again, round betting. Obviously, one of the reasons that you see more gambles on this than any other market 
are the biggest starting prices. Coincidentally, it was again round three that attracted the money. Now, the price was nowhere near to that of Fury or Burns. Obviously, Condon was such a huge favourite, and secondly, it was a six-rounder, so half the number of rounds to choose from anyway. That round was backed in from around three to one, I believe, to a short of three to ten. So minus 300, uh, four to nine, minus two to five, so firmly in odds-on territory. A remarkable price to see on any round in the round betting market. Condon, who was walked to the ring by Conor McGregor, just keep that in mind, duly went on to stop Ibarra in three. It was a mismatch. Condon was anywhere between one to a hundred and one to a thousand. But why would round three go on rather than round one or two? Obviously, there was a lot of hype around Condon's pro debut. Big interest from Irish fans. Now, in the build-up, Condon predicted round three. He said in an interview that he was going to take his time to start with and he wasn't going to go for anything. If you watch the fight, Ibarra certainly didn't take a dive, or he was very, very good at doing so. Now, do I think this was a fix? Or that any guy was implicated in any wrongdoing? No, I don't. Condon was that much better than Ibarra. It got to the point where he could decide how long he wanted to carry him for. Now, that's a big difference between a fixed fight. A fighter simply following through on an outcome they predicted. Fighters predict outcomes every single week. But it's rare that a fighter is good enough, or so much better than their opponent, that they can actually make it happen. In this case, a highly skilled Olympic boxer against a journeyman, it was one of them. Equally rare, though, is that a prediction will be matched by a flood of money that moves the market to the degree that it was here. Now, I think there are a few factors. St. Patrick's Day, Irish betting patriotically on the country's next big hope in male boxing switching over. The interview Conlon gave, predicting round three. And also the much publicised association with Conor McGregor, a man who, to some degree, made his name with the Mystic Mac nickname after correctly predicting the round he win in on numerous occasions. All of those things together reinforce the case for a bet. And if enough people are told something, they'll follow it up with money. Like Burns and Cook, though, bookies did take action. There was a significant amount of money taken. And due to the suspicious activity, what that means is that there was activity on the round betting at all in a fight like this. And the bookies voided or withheld bets after it was flagged internally to ESSA now known as the International Betting Integrity Association, pending investigation. The lesson is this, if something looks too good to be true, whether it's a gamble, or it's clearly some kind of palpable error that will get struck off and have your account restricted as a result, it probably is. And in the future, if you're looking for 11-2 on Huey Fury to stop a world-class heavyweight in a round of your choice, then I've got some magic beans going at a very nice price. Finally, I wanted to dedicate this show and really everything I do in boxing to an old friend. I got the news a couple of weeks ago that a man named Chris Wildman had passed away all too soon. Chris, and this can be said by many others, was my first ever boxing coach. I first stepped through the doors of Campbell and Redruth ABC, a very small club in Cornwall, southwest England, where I first grew up when I was no older than 14. It was, and I believe still is, the epitome of a spit and sawdust type of place. And in the past few weeks, I couldn't resist 
kind of taking the journey through the winding roads on Google Maps to check it out. Corrugated iron roof, no windows, bare bricks and cement inside, half a working toilet. Some of you will know the type of place. Chris, like so many amateur coaches up and down the country, gave countless hours of his time to train both kids and adults and help the club for no financial gain whatsoever. I never did make much of a boxer, but what Chris taught me both inside the ring and out about commitment and determination, about self-discipline, about respect for others, all at quite an impressionable age, and the type of lesson I wasn't getting elsewhere, is something I'll now never get the chance to truly thank him for. While through my dad I was exposed to boxing at a much younger age than 14, I can say with some confidence that I'd never fallen in love with or got involved with the sport without Chris's tutelage. The show will be back in a couple of weeks in the build-up to the big one, Spence versus Porter. In the meantime, please do gamble responsibly and enjoy the fights this weekend. Thanks for listening.